I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10, I'll be reading the first 15 verses as we continue this study through the book of Joshua. Hear the word of God. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its kings as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Ezekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with a sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ijon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. <coughs> Back in the day when I asked my wife to marry me, the expectations for a proposal were much lower than they are today. <laughs> Back then, all you needed was a fancy restaurant, a nice dinner, and a ring. 
But now, from what I see online, you need a photographer, a videographer, a choreographer, a band, several costume changes, and some kind of elaborate scavenger hunt. Now, I did take my wife to a Pirates game before I took her to the nice restaurant, and that was pretty special. But it never even crossed my mind to have it broadcast upon the big scoreboard in center field. It does seem like things have gotten out of hand with proposals, but I do deeply appreciate the motivation behind all of it. There is a desire there, a desire to do something big and bold and spectacular to say to your beloved, I love you very much and I am committed to you forever. I love you very much, and I'm committed to you forever. I bring that up because scripture is full of incidents, events in history, where God did something big, bold, and spectacular to say to his people, I love you very much, and I am committed to you forever. We call them miracles. In this passage, we're going to see that when it comes to miracles, these big, bold, spectacular events where God intervenes in the affairs of men in a supernatural way, what matters is not how spectacular the miracle is, but what is the message that it communicates both to God's people and to the world? What's the message behind the miracle? So as we look at the miracles in this passage, and there are actually three of them here, I want to take a second to look at the context of these miracles. It's important that we understand that they took place during a time of testing, a time where the faith of God's people was being tested. It's interesting, in chapter 10, we see that at the very beginning of the chapter, the first couple of verses, once again, the author of the book of Joshua is pointing out the effect of the arrival of the people of Israel and the outlandish stories that the Canaanites heard about what God had done to fight for his people, to deliver them to the promised land and to give the promised land into their hands, that, that this has struck deep fear. How many times have we read that their hearts melted with fear as they saw what God was doing for Israel? Well, this time, the trigger we see is the covenant, the treaty that was formed between Israel and Gibeon. If you were with us last week, you remember in chapter 9, we saw how the Gibeonites were one of the Canaanite city-states, one of the Canaanite nations, and they planned this elaborate trick to play on the Israelites. They dressed and had dry provisions and had tired donkeys and they acted like they were coming from a nation far away outside of the boundaries of Canaan and they came to Joshua and the leadership of Israel asking to form a treaty, to form an alliance, to become a vassal state to Israel and how the Jewish leadership bought into it. They fell for the trick 
and they formed a treaty thinking that the Gibeonites were from outside of Canaan. Therefore, by God's law, they were allowed to sign a covenant to form a treaty with them. But in reality, they soon found out that they were actually only about 20 miles away from them. They were the, one of the next city-states in Canaan that were due to come under God's judgment and be wiped out by the armies of Israel. We saw last week that the interesting thing was, here's Joshua and the leadership of Israel. They're in a conundrum here. What do they do? Do they obey God's command and wipe out the Gibeonites? Or do they honor the promise, this the sacred covenant that they made with the Gibeons in the name of Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God, do they honor the covenant or do they obey the original command? They decided to honor the covenant. And so as we see that, we come into the situation today, you kind of have to put yourself in the shoes of either the Gibeonites or the Israelites and realize that both of their tests, their faith was being tested. What happened, though, was that this Israelite-Gibeonite treaty had caused such a deep fear in the Canaanites because, and this is something we didn't see in chapter 9. In chapter 9, you're thinking, well, maybe Gibeon was this little, weak city-state, and that's why they gave in so quickly. That's why they threw their lot in with Israel to see, to hope to avoid the judgment. Maybe it's because they were so small and weak, but we find out here in chapter 10, it's not at all the case. It says in verse 2 that Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and all of its men were warriors. So this is actually one of the strongest city-states in Canaan. And their armies were feared. And so now you've got Israel and the Gibeonites in, a, in an alliance, in a treaty, in a, in a covenant with one another. And the rest of the Canaanite nations were struck with deep fear. And you also, if you were able to look at this on a map, you would quickly understand that what, it, what had already taken place is that the Israelites, as they had invaded, the, come across the Jordan, invaded the Promised Land, they had conquered the great city of Jericho, they had conquered the lesser city of Ai, and now they were in alliance with the Gibeonites. So what they have, if you could see it on a map, was actually a wedge into Canaan. And so from a military standpoint, they not only had a key wedge, which is a key military strategy to defeat any army, any set of armies, but also... They controlled the major highways of central uh, Canaan. And so there's good reason why the rest of the Canaanite nations were shaking in their boots at this point. But the fear causes them to come together. We saw this before, that even though these nations probably had little in common and probably hated each other at some level, yet they come together in opposition against the Lord and his people and so in verse 1, it says the leader of this new coalition was the king of Jerusalem. And interestingly, this is the first time that Jerusalem is mentioned in, in the Bible. And at this, this point, of course, it was a Canaanite city and under the control of God's enemies. One day it would be the city of David and the capital of God's kingdom on earth, Israel. So the king of Jerusalem then brokers an alliance with four other Canaanite kings and they marched together, not against Israel, but against Big Gibeon. First of all, to punish Gibeon for its treachery, for throwing in its lot with the invaders instead of throwing in its lot with the other Canaanite city-states, but also to weaken this new alliance. So they tried to defeat Gibeon before this relationship with Israel can even get started. 
And so Gibeon, the leaders of Gibeon, send out an appeal to Joshua. And indirectly then, an appeal to the God of Joshua that they had heard about and that they had feared. They say to Joshua and the leaders, come up to us quickly and save us and help us. You see, they're appealing to the covenant that had been made in the name of Yahweh. They are now, in a very real sense, part of God's covenant community. They had attached themselves to the visible people of God on earth, the church of the Old Testament. They had brought themselves within the boundaries of the covenant. Yes, they would be servants, as we saw, but they would be under God's protection in fellowship with God's people. They would be serving even at the tabernacle, as we saw. They were part of the covenant community. They had feared the God of Israel, and, but instead of opposing the God of Israel, they have chosen to serve the God of Israel, put their trust in him. But now all their neighbors, all their former allies are now coming against them. Ever had that happen, especially for a new believer? Doesn't that so often happen? That you put your trust in God and all of a sudden all the people that were your friends are now attacking you? You put your trust in the Lord and all of a sudden your family members turn on you? It's a test of faith. It's a time when you really need to be reassured by the Lord that he is faithful to his covenant promises. That you can trust in him. That he will protect you. He will be with you. He will see you through it. But it wasn't only the Gibeonites, the quote-unquote new believers that needed this assurance of faith, but it was the Israelites who also needed it. The question that has to be ringing in their minds is, is he still with us? Because remember, he has not spoken since before they formed that covenant with the Gibeonites. And so I'm sure that Joshua even, among the, let alone the other leaders, are wondering, did we do the right thing? God told us to wipe the Gibeonites out, and we didn't consult with them. Remember the language, what it says in chapter 9, is they didn't pray to God, they didn't consult with God, and, then they, and so therefore they fell for the, the, uh, the ruse, the trick. And so then they were in this tough situation, so they decided to honor the covenant instead of wiping out the Gibeonites. So I'm sure that they're wondering, God has not spoken as far as we know up to this point. Did they do the right thing? Is God still with us? Is this victory, or is, is this, this battle with the five Canaanite kings, is that going to end like the great victory in Jericho because God is with them and God fights for them? Or is it going to end like the humiliating defeat the first time they attacked at IE? Is God with them or isn't he? And so what you see in verse 8 is the Lord's word of assurance to both Israel and then ultimately to Gibeon. The Lord says to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. This probably should sound familiar if you've been with our studies all along, because this is exactly, almost word for word, the promise that God had given to Joshua and Israel back in the beginning of chapter 1. He's basically saying to his people, I am with you, I will fight for you, but notice the language of what he says in his promise. He says, I have given them into your hand. That's the past tense. And when you see God speaking of some future event as though it has already happened in the past, what they call that 
in scripture studies is the prophetic perfect. The prophetic perfect tense. When God speaks as about something that he's going to do in the future, but he speaks of it in the past tense as, as though it's already been accomplished. That's the prophetic perfect. And that's what's happening. He says, they already are defeated. Victory is already yours before you've even picked up a sword. And I say this, I point this out, because this kind of prophetic perfect is found throughout Scripture, even in the New Testament. Many places in the New Testament, God speaks about things that he will do for his people. People who have put their trust in him, he speaks about future events as though they have already happened in the past. Because when God wills to do something, nobody can thwart his will. So when God promises and says, I will do something, he can speak of it, of it as though it has already been accomplished. If you have put your trust in Christ, then every promise that is given is that certain. It's as though it has already happened. Well, emboldened by the Lord's assurance, Joshua and Israel's army marched through the night, a very unusual nighttime march. Might be able to pull that off today, but back in those days, and the technology they had those days, it would be very difficult to march all night through the darkness of the night. But they did it in order to catch the Canaanite kings that were surrounded and laying siege to Gibeon to catch them off guard. But notice that the first strike in the battle doesn't come from the swords of Israel. It comes from the Lord himself. He directly and supernaturally intervenes as the first step in the battle. And so I want to talk about miracles for a second. We call them miracles, but actually the language of Scripture, when Scripture talks about God supernaturally intervening in the affairs of men in history, it calls them signs and wonders. And keep that in your minds. We call them miracles, but the Bible calls them signs and wonders. Because if you remember that, and that's the, the, the terminology you have in your brain, you're going to remember what they're really intended for. They are intended to be signs and wonders. That tells us their purpose. You see, God is sovereign over the entire creation. He created all things, but he didn't create all things and then create a, a system of laws and rules by which the physical universe would interact with itself and then walk away. What the Bible tells us is that God remains involved in every aspect of the universe, in every moment of history from that point on. That in a very real sense, God is active continuously from the time he brought the creation into existence. Nothing is outside of his will, and nothing is outside of his control. He created all things, he sustains all things. Normally, in what we call his ordinary providence. Normally, God works through these laws of nature that he created, that he designed, that he put into place, and that he maintains and keeps running. Normally, he works through the laws of nature. He is a God of order, not a God of chaos. But God is not bound by the laws of nature. God is not bound by the laws of physics. God is not bound by the laws of biology. And as we'll see in this text, he's not bound by the laws of astronomy. God can do and does do as he pleases. 
And once in a while, very occasionally, he will intervene in the normal workings of things and he will violate the laws. There's the only kind of laws that God will ever break is the laws of nature. He will sometimes act contrary to the laws of nature and do what we call a miracle. But his miracles, what we call miracles, are signs and wonders. He does it to communicate a message. Signs point to something else, something that's true. Signs are, in, are meaningless in and of themselves. They only have meaning as they point to something that is true and important. And God, when he intervenes, when he decides to break the laws of nature and intervene and do something supernatural, he does it for a redemptive purpose. So in this sense, in the sense of which we're talking about it, from a biblical perspective, the birth of a baby is not a miracle. I know that many of you fathers and mothers have said that in the delivery room, that this was a miracle. What a, what a great work of God. But it's not a miracle in the scriptural terms because it happens according to the laws of nature that have been in place from the beginning. It's not a miracle. But a virgin birth, ah, now there you have a biblical sign and wonder. Something that happens contrary to the laws of nature. And it happens for a redemptive purpose to communicate a very, very important message. And so we see in history that God sometimes will part a large sea. He'll cause water to flow from a rock. He'll stop a storm with a command. You see, what I'm saying here is that contrary to what you're going to hear in many Christian circles, we are not to expect miracles as a normal part of life. Because God doesn't do miracles in order to make our lives easier. God doesn't do miracles to make our lives healthier. He doesn't do miracles to make our lives more prosperous. He doesn't do miracles to make our lives comfortable. That's not the purpose of miracles. They are signs and wonders. As signs, they point to the truth that he is seeking to communicate to believers and to unbelievers. As one commentator said, this is always very helpful to me, he said, miracles without a message are just magic. Miracles without a message are just magic. And God does not deal in magic. His power is not to be manipulated for selfish purposes. Miracles are signs and wonders. And why wonders? It's because once you see the sign and you understand the message that it's communicating, your response is to be on your knees or on your face in worship, in awe and amazement at what God has done. It's, see, it's all meant to lead you to worship the one true God. Signs give you a message, and it's the message that drives you to your knees in worship. When I say that signs always have a redemptive purpose, what I'm saying is that you see all the miracles that God has done in Scripture, that are recorded for us in history, in Scripture, that all those signs either have a redemptive purpose, they either have a, a purpose of communicating a message of grace to God's people, or they have the purpose of communicating a warning of judgment upon his enemies. 
So they're either signs of grace or they're signs of judgment. And what we see in the text here in chapter 10 is that two of the three miracles are therefore signs of judgment, warnings to his enemies. The first one is one you may not have noticed. It's in verse 10. Israel's armies arrive on the scene. The Canaanite kings and their armies are surrounding the city of Gibeon. But the first blow in the battle comes as an internal blow from God himself. The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. And I say that, that that was happened, I think, before any battle ever started, because that happens a lot of times in the Old Testament. There's several places in the Old Testament where Israel and its, and its enemies are going to battle, and somehow God intervenes and causes the enemy armies to, to be hit with a fear and a panic, and they either flee from Israel's armies or they turn on one another. And so there's a supernatural panic that sets in among these armies of these five kings. And then as they fled from Israel, verse 11 says, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them and they died. And goes on to say that more enemy soldiers died from the hailstorm than did from the swords of the Israelites. God fought for his people. You see, going back to our definition, hail is natural. It operates according to the laws of nature. So there's nothing miraculous about a hailstorm. But a hailstorm that has hailstones big enough to kill soldiers in armor, that's a miracle. Hailstorm that hits only the enemy armies and not the Israelites' armies, that's against the laws of nature. That's a miracle. That's God stepping into the situation to say, this is what happens to the enemies who raise their fist to me. Hail always is associated in scripture with judgment. That's the message of a hailstorm. When God does something miraculous through a hailstorm, the message is God's judgment. It was one of the ten plagues upon the Egyptians, wasn't it? During the Exodus, when God delivered his people. Remember the dialogue between Job and God where God is just basically saying to Job that you need to trust me, that I'm a sovereign God, I'm an all-powerful God, you need to trust me. This is what he says about hailstorms to Job. He says, have, this is from Job 38, verses 22 and 23. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? And even if you go to the book of Revelation, the first trumpet that the angels blow, what happens? A hailstorm falls upon the earth, destroying God's enemies. The last bowl of wrath, as it's poured out upon the earth by the angels, what happens? A hailstorm upon the earth. It's a warning of God's judgment. But the third miracle that you see in this passage is a sign of God's grace, a sign of God's deliverance, God's protection, God fighting for his people. In verses 12 through 14, you have recorded there one of the most amazing miracles that God has ever done in the history of mankind. Talk about God acting contrary to the laws of nature. Have you ever wanted more hours in a day to get something done that you're supposed to do? 
How many times have you prayed for that? Have you ever gotten it? I, I doubt any of you have. Joshua did. They needed more hours, more daylight hours to defeat the enemies of God, to do what God had called him to do. He needed more hours in the day. And God intervened in the laws of nature in an incredible way to give Joshua more time to fulfill his mission. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. I know you've all asked yourselves a question if you're familiar with this passage. Did the planet actually stop rotating for almost a whole day? Because that's what it's alluding to. I know sun stops, the earth you know, revolves around the sun, the sun doesn't revolve the earth. We talk about sunrises and sunsets, so does the Bible. So that's just observational language. But what the implications of this, for this to be literally true, the, the, the earth would have to stop rotating. And I'm not a scientist, and I'm sure many of you who are scientists could tell me all of the cosmological massive disasters that would cause, not only on the planet, but in the solar system and beyond. So because of that, I think, because it just seems so big, so impossible to be true, a lot of scholars, commentators have tried to come up with other explanations. Matter of fact, some of them, they noticed that that verse 12 and verse 13 is in a poetic form and say, oh, well, maybe this is poetry. That means it's metaphorical language. It's not meant to be taken literally. Well, in poetry, that's a legitimate way to study scripture. But the problem is, it says immediately afterwards, in prose, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day, and there's been no day like it before or since. I just don't see any way to get around that statement. Some commentators have said, well, maybe it was stopping the sun in the sense that there was an unnatural uh, cloud cover that caused uh, the, the, the heat of the sun from beating down on the Israelites. No, it's, that's a weak, weak interpretation. Some have said that maybe it was that God lined up the sun and the moon in such a way that it was interpreted as a bad omen by the Canaanite armies and their superstitions, and that's what got, no, I mean, I th you just have to take God's word at face value on this. I'm sorry. I really think you do. I don't know how God did it. I don't know how he mitigated all the effects that stopping the rotation of the planet would cause. I don't know how he did it. But I'll tell you this, I believe that God can do it. I believe he has the power to do it. He spoke the universe into existence by the power of his word alone. That's more amazing to me. In the days of King Hezekiah... Hezekiah, remember, asked God to make the shadow on the steps of his palace go backwards three steps. How did the shadow of the sun go backwards? That's even more amazing to me than the sun stopping in the sky. Jesus, the Son of God, walked on the water. And he spoke to a violent storm and it stopped instantaneously. Jesus created enough food to feed thousands of people out of five loaves and two fish. I can't explain any of that. But I challenge anybody to tell me where is the line between the laws of nature, which God created and God sustains, where in all the body of the laws of nature, on what side of the line can God break the laws and what side of the line can't he? Which laws of nature are too hard for him to break? Remember what God said to Abraham and Sarah? Is anything too hard for God? 
certainly not stopping the planet and mitigating all the effects. But I think even having to go on into as much time as I spent on that, it's beside the point. It really is. Do you notice that as amazing as this miracle was, it's not what fascinated the author of this historical account. Look at the end of the, end of the passage. Look at verse 15, 14. What amazed the person who wrote the words of this historical account down? It wasn't that the sun stopped in the sky. What was it? It's that God heeded the voice of a man and that the Lord fought for Israel. That's what drove him to his knees. He saw the sign, he heard the message, and he fell to his knees in wonder that God listened to the prayer of a sinner like you and me and did what he asked, and that God fought for his people. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. How is God ever going, a holy, righteous, just God, ever going to hear the prayers of a sinner like you and me? How is he ever going to look favorably upon sinners like you and me? Only because God himself fought the battle against our worst enemies that we could never fight. God, the Son, the one who created the universe, became man, dwelt among us, lived a perfectly righteous life, the only one who did not deserve to face the wrath and judgment of God, not the only one who deserved not to die, and he died in our place. He took on Satan, he took on sin, he took on the world, he defeated all of our enemies, he fought for us and gave us this covenant relationship with him by grace. Those who put their trust in him are reconciled to God. He not only hears our prayers, he looks upon them favorably, and he works for our good, and he fights for us against our enemies. That's the gospel. You see, it's easy to read a story like this and kind of get all caught up in the scientific implications of it and, you know, and mysticism, whatever, whatever fascinates you about this text, and, and get to the end of it and say, but how is this relevant to me? I'm not expecting to see hailstones big enough to kill soldiers in my lifetime. I'm not expecting to get an extra 24 hours. You don't really get an extra 24 hours in a leap year, right? You're not expecting to get 24 hours in any day. God's not going to do that miracle for your life. So how does this apply to you? How is this relevant in the 21st century? It's, let me go back to what I said at the beginning. When God intervenes and violates the laws of nature, he does it as a sign to lead you to wonder. So in other words, God does something big, bold, and spectacular to say to you, I love you very much, and I am committed to you forever. God is with you if you're in Christ. If you're trusting in Christ, if you have eternal life in Christ, God is with you, he knows you, he's committed to you, he hears your prayers, and he will fight for you until all of your enemies, your worst enemies, sin, death, and hell, are defeated once and for all. And if you don't think that's relevant, then you haven't experienced the gospel. That's a perspective changer, that's a worldview changer. It radically affects how you see who God is, 
who you are. It affects how you see the world around you, the people around you. It changes your life. It takes away your fear and it fills you with a deep and satisfying security. God loves you very much. He is committed to you forever and he will fight for you until he wins in the very end and it's a done deal. It's as though it already happened. Let's pray. Father, we read a passage like this and we're struck by your power, your sovereignty, your glory. But what really strikes us and now drives us to our knees is that you have employed all that power and sovereignty for us, for our good, for our salvation. And it's all happened. It's as good as accomplished because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Now as we approach the table of the Lord, may our deep wonder and awe and thankfulness be expressed to you. Feed us by your grace. Strengthen our faith that we might serve you more effectively. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.